Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson, Podcast Mike here, introducing this week's guest, Danielle Walker. Danielle Walker is a comedian originally from Townsville who has been making waves on the stand-up comedy circuit here in Melbourne uh, for for a few years now. Her first show, Bushrat, won the Best Newcomer Award at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival back in 2018. Uh, and she's appeared on various uh, television programs doing stand-up, uh, as well as writing for several TV shows as well. Danielle talks about her journey getting into comedy, as well as what she likes to do outside of comedy. So enjoy this conversation between her and Will. If you like Willosophy, you can head to patreon.com slash Willosophy. Uh, donate as little as a dollar a month to get these episodes one day early and ad-free. Uh, you can also go to tofop.com to see all of our great artwork across all of our shows, Tofop, Fofop, and Two Guys, One Cup. Will and Charlie will be doing a live version of the Tofop podcast at the Great Australian Podcast Festival in November. The link will be in the bio to this podcast and tickets are selling fast. So definitely go and grab one. As well as that, you can also catch Will's brand new TV show, Question Everything, on the ABC this Wednesday, the 18th of August at 8.30pm. Catch it on iView as well if you miss it. And if you do want to see Will live, uh, he will be doing improv shows in Sydney and Brisbane on Sunday the 3rd of October at the Brisbane Powerhouse and Sunday the 10th of October at the Enmore Theatre in Sydney. Go and grab tickets if you'd like to see Will live. Uh, but for now, I will pass it over to this chat between Will Anderson and Danielle Walker. Enjoy. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Um, hello, I'm Danielle Walker um, and um, a lady. <laughs> <laughs> hello, Danielle Walker, a lady. It's nice to have you on the show. What does a lady mean to you? Like, it's the only description you've given me, so that's what I'm going to work with. You've described yourself as a lady. What does that mean? Well, I just was overwhelmed. I didn't really know how to <laughs> describe <laughs> myself. I had an existential crisis immediately. <laughs> that's that's what I like to do. Start with what seems like a very innocuous, innocuous sounding question, which is who are you? And just have somebody have a complete meltdown on the first question. As well as being a lady, you are a, a writer, a comedian, a performer. Like what else are you professionally? Like if you if someone says to you, like, who is Danielle Walker? What do you do? What would you uh, say in return? Um, professionally, yeah, I guess I'd say I'm a uh, comedian and writer. Um, and that would probably be it. I don't really know what else there is yet. <laughs> <laughs> I could do now, other stuff. <laughs> now, when you say you don't know what else there is yet, is that because you haven't been offered the opportunity to do other things yet? Or is it because you yourself haven't unlocked the bit of you that has discovered whether you can do other things yet? Well, yeah, I haven't done other things yet that I want to do, but then also I feel like there's so much stuff that I would 
do or could do that I just haven't gone down that route yet because I'm sort of focusing on a different thing. Like I think I'd be a really good um, furniture maker or florist, but I'm not in that um, route yet. I'm sort of sticking okay, with comedy. I, I like this. We'll get back to comedy in a minute <laughs> because that's going to be the main part of our conversation. But in this fictional world where you are either a florist or a furniture maker, what is it about those particular professions that appeals to you? I think like colour, working with like mm. colour and um, just working with your hands, which is something I like to do. Where does that come from, the idea of working with your hands? Did you grow up somewhere where you were encouraged to work with your hands? Yeah, I grew up in the country, so just everything is tangible, you mm. know, like you make <laughs> everything from scratch and nothing is online or in your head. It's all just already in the world and you make it from there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I've never heard it described like that, but it's so true because I'm a country kid as well. I'm from a, a little dairy community of about 250 people. So explain to people where you're from. What's the Danielle Walker story? Well, I grew up in like Blue Water, a little bit outside of Townsville. So it's like, I don't know, a bit north, closer to like Rolling Stone, Rockhampton. Oh, not Rockhampton, just Rolling Stone area. And um, it's just acreage uh, out that way and... Like we grew up with a creek in the backyard and um, just, I don't know, plants and chooks and dogs and stuff. And I spent a lot of time with my nana and granddad who lived up in Tully in the, at the army camp up there. So uh, my granddad was caretaker of the army camp, so he would just sort of look after the rainforest up there um, for the army to come and use as a training area. Um, so, yeah, we would like go off into the bush and um, just – check the pig traps and kill the pigs and um, make sure everything was in running order for them to come do their stuff. So, yeah, that's sort of where I grew up. <laughs> so how does that youth, that childhood, you know, what's the path from that to professional writer and stand-up comedian then? How does that work? Well, I think that because my family are really big on stories mm -hmm. um, and we would always have like a campfire every night up at Nana and Granddad's and then even at Blue Water we'd always have them over and have a campfire and everybody would always tell stories around the campfire and it would always be the same group of people and always the same stories. Right. So, <laughs> so very much like stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like I watch them work on the bits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just loved, I don't know, I just loved hearing them talk and all the, the ways that they talk are so funny, just the turns of phrases they use and that sort of thing. And I think that uh, I talked like that too and people found me funny, but I didn't know I was funny because I was just mimicking them until I, I think at 20-something I got self-awareness. And then I realised what was funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's interesting to me because, like, knowing the difference is, like, obviously if you're a professional, like, if you're going to pursue something as your profession, you've got to have some understanding of what it is about you that people find amusing. But I'm interested in the period before that, the times when you were – how did you respond to laughter? If people are laughing along with you, the way that you speak, the way that you tell stories, but you haven't quite – unlocked why that is how were you responding to it in the moment was it just validation were you enjoying being assimilated as part of the group was it encouraged like was there a real sense of like danielle it's your turn to tell a story now oh yeah i loved it 
I loved it so much. But everybody in my family loved the laughter. And, yeah, my mum would always, like, hold court at, like, family gatherings and stuff. So I definitely, like, wanted to be like that and feel that, um, like, everybody is listening to you and wants to hear what you have to say and, like, loves it too. So, okay, so that's growing up. I can see where the love of storytelling and being funny comes from. It's a pretty clear origin story. You've given us a very much Batman falls down a well, there's a whole bunch of bats, and he's like, okay, I'm going to dress up as a bat and fight crime. (laughs) Good, I can see the through line. But when does – so this moment of revelation or self-awareness, do you – is it a moment or is it a gradual awareness or is it because you're being interested in pursuing comedy as a career? Like, tell me what you're like at 20. Where are you in your life when you're having this self-awareness, this realisation? Yeah, I, w- I was living in London. I would moved I moved to London like a few weeks after I turned 19. Why? Um, oh, my mum and dad got um, separated and I didn't want to be around for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So I, I moved to London. I did no research on what it was like over there at all. I just had saved some money working at my job. And I would I felt like um, I'd been in Townsville and always liked the idea of um, comedy and stuff because my cousins had told me I should do it and, like, some friends from Scouts had told me I should do it and stuff. And when I got to London, I saw other people doing things Um, And it felt like it was actually something you could do. And then that sort of made me start to like almost like compile stuff in my mind that I could use and think about it more. And I think that helped trigger like a self-awareness in me, just spending more time thinking, (laughs) weirdly. So uh, it is. That's what self-awareness is, isn't it? Yeah. It's that mo- that moment that you get inside your own brain and start looking at yourself and trying to jumble through what's in there and why you think what you think and why you feel what you feel and how you can reframe things in the way that you can tell stories and be funny and have some sort of control over your thoughts and emotions and history. Like it's a, it makes a lot of sense. But so you're in London at the same time. Did you first do stand up in London? Did you try it there? No, I just went to open mics to watch and and other gigs to see what it was like and then I decided I'd wait till I got back to Townsville um, to start in the best place to start. Yeah, I won't do it here in London. I won't start my stand-up comedy career in London. There's no progression in stand-up comedy in London. Townsville, that's where I should start. Yeah, I like to keep it simple. Where did you do a gig in Townsville? Do they have like a regular room in Townsville? Um, they had like a stand-up comedy course up there oh, yeah. that was run by a guy um, in the local scene and he, yeah, we just did like, I don't know, seven weeks of classes to write your first bit and then finish, do like one of those performing classes at the end. Um, and so, yeah, I got to do my first gig at the Herbert Hotel in Townsville to like it was about 150 people, so it was actually really great because there was actually people there. Um, and then, and was I it 150 people? Probably because it was it one of those courses where they encourage everyone to bring some people along. Was that the? Yeah. So it's a it's a bit of a show, and everyone who's on the show brings a bunch of people along. So there's probably a pretty good vibe in the room because everybody yeah. there's pretty supportive. So was the in re- retrospect now that you've been in the comedy industry for long enough? 
How valuable or otherwise do you think that course was? Was it a good way to start doing comedy, to do a course and then do a performance? I thought that this course was actually like really good for me, but I think that was only, I think it was because it was run by like a young person who actually hadn't done that much comedy themselves at all. Um, And because it was just like a bunch of other people and we could all just talk and sort of support each other, which I very much think that, It was the only way I would have written five minutes of material coming each week than getting up on stage. I don't think I would have gotten it together had I not felt like I had a bunch of people to encourage me. But I think the ones that are run in different places, it really depends on the course. I've heard some absolute horror stories. Yeah, well, it just depends on who's running the course, what their intentions are. Like, I mean, you've got to learn somehow and there is no, you know, like university course or whatever that is standard for the industry. Like most of the time you just one day just go, I reckon I can do this and put your name down on a list. Like yeah. it's a pretty low bar of entry into our industry, you know, at least in that regard, you know. Um, so yeah. what did you talk about? Do you remember what you talked about? Oh, he, we had to do so much different, like we did like improv exercises, but then we also – had to watch another stand-up set and learn it and perform their set. So that was weird to be like, oh, I'm stealing somebody's material and doing it to seven other people. But it did feel nice to be like, oh, I'm getting laughs (laughs) and I didn't even have to do any work. (laughs) Well, it's funny. Like I spoke to, I mean, there's no way to tell this story without it sounding like the wankerist story. But anyway, I spoke to John Cleese about, comedy and he was saying that he thought one of the best ways to learn how to write stand-up comedy was to learn someone else's someone you liked learn their routine by heart but not to perform it he said that then write it down and if you can see how it's performed and then write it down you'll actually see how that comedian structured that routine where the beats are where the you know jokes are where the punchlines are like you know how they've put it all together and it's actually quite a so you know, that young guy wasn't that far off. You know, yeah. John Cleese, one of the greatest comedians of all time in their thinking of what a good way to learn comedy was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so you do it in Townsville. Now, is there opportunities for you to keep doing it in Townsville at that point? Uh, no. There's not – I got to do some good gigs. Uh, I got to open for a magician and <laughs> I got to uh, perform at a – uh, real estate Christmas party, um, <laughs> lots of cool stuff. But then um, a Dan Towns came to Townsville um, mm-hmm. and like headlined the Herbert Hotel one week and he really liked me. It was about my sixth gig and then he helped me organise a bunch of gigs in Sydney and Adelaide um, and then I went and did all those gigs and I felt myself get better over the week because I got to do like seven gigs in a week or something and being able to not have to practice for an hour before getting on stage and just knowing stuff off by heart by the end was like really great. And so I went back to Townsville and then saved a heap of money to move to Melbourne so I could do comedy. Okay, so at this point you've decided, like, I mean, if you're going to save a whole bunch of money and move somewhere specifically to do comedy, there's been a point somewhere in there where you've said, I think I'm going to try and pursue this as a career. Do you remember when that point was? Oh, yeah. I decided that before I did the comedy course. Right. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, good. All right, I understand now. You're just like, I- I'm going to do this thing. I might as well learn a few of the rules and how it works before yeah. I pursue it. I was so like, these why, are the steps. Why Melbourne rather than Sydney? Why was that your choice? Did you have an affinity more with Melbourne as a town? Did you think that the style of comedy they were doing in Melbourne was more suited to you? Like, was there any particular appeal of Melbourne over Sydney or, or over Brisbane? Uh, no, I'd never been to Melbourne. Um, but I knew I'd been to Sydney and I didn't really love um, some parts of it. Like I didn't love how businessy it seemed because I came mm-hmm. to visit my friend um, a few times and it didn't seem like the right vibe for me and I'd heard stuff about Melbourne. So I just thought I'll move there instead. And because it's got the festival, I was like, that seems like a good idea. And that, yeah, I, I loved Melbourne. When I first got there, I f- it felt like home, which was good. Yeah, okay. So uh, where did, I mean, I, I guess we can say this now because you're not living in there anymore. Yeah. Where, did you, where did you move to? What part of Melbourne did you find yourself in? And what was your living situation? Did you have friends that you moved in with or did you just like find a room with some strangers or were you living by yourself? Like I'm, I'm quite fascinated by the idea that you've saved up a bit of money. Like this is a pattern of your life. You saved up some money, you went to London. You've saved up some money, you're moving to Melbourne. Um, <laughs> what, you know, what did you do once you were there? What was your living situation? Um, I moved in with, I found like a house on Gumtree and it said the minimum age for the other people who had to move in was like 25, but Mm. I think I was like 22. So I sort of talked myself, (laughs) talked them into me. Um, And it was like a terrace house on St Kilda Road, um, sort of near the junction. So right near Albert Park area Uh and also St Kilda. And my housemates were all sort of in their 30s and they were all just like the – it was like the – it was a big gay house where it was like everybody was like an interior designer or a landscaper or somebody was learning Latin and it was like the best house to move into because I felt like they were all adults and we could also have like nice chats and have dinner together. And I just started working at, um, I don't know, it was like a online uh, what stock market. Uh, they sent like a newsletter out to old people to tell them mm-hmm. where to invest their stocks. And I worked at that place and then I just did comedy every night immediately. <laughs> Okay, so you just go down and you're like, I'm going to have a job and I'm going to have this job for as long as I need the job. But in the meantime, I am just going to throw myself into becoming a stand-up comedian. So whatever that means. You've never been to Melbourne before, but you're like, fuck it, I'm here. And uh, hello, this is me. Do you just start ringing around? Are you that person? You just start going, what are the shows in town? How can I get on these shows? Like what were the mechanics of it? I think there'd be a whole bunch of people who are listening to this who've had – similar you know aspirations or dreams to what you've had and they might be living in similar rural regions in Australia where they're just like how the fuck can I ever do this I'm very fascinated by how you did it yeah well I just joined the there was I just typed in comedy onto Facebook Mm. and I found the like you know there's like a million comedy notice boards in every area and I found that and then they had like a list of all the open mic nights and everything on it and so then I went to um mad dog in it was mad dog in the foot or oh, whatever it was it was in footscray i went there and um that was my first gig and then i met a bunch of comics there and then they told me about all the other gigs and then 
I think from that point on, I just gigged like five or six nights a week. And then pretty soon it was then I didn't have to worry about booking gigs because then people message you. And once they're in your diary, you just sort of like you're stuck. You can't yeah. ever <laughs> not have gigs. <laughs> okay. So you s- talked about the idea of going to Sydney and like, you know, doing all these shows and just feeling yourself improve. Take me back to this time because this is the time that excites me the most in any comedian's career which is yeah. when you're starting out on it and it's it's starting like you're starting yeah. to do good gigs you're starting to get other gigs there's this excitement and momentum but you don't know enough about it yet to really know what's going to be good or bad or indifferent about pursuing it for the rest of your life like I'm, i mean i look back on my days of doing that exact same thing in melbourne as with such incredibly fond memories of how exciting it was i mean also how hard it was but how exciting it was to meet all these other people who also wanted to be comedians and be inspired by them and be friends with them and just like laugh constantly what was your experience like was it fun were you enjoying yourself yeah i think it was very similar to what you described it was just like the it was like the best times because I could go out every single night know that I was going to go to a bar or something and have a bunch of friends there and be able to get up on stage and do comedy and then talk about it afterwards with them and hang out and just feel like I think it was the first time I'd ever felt like properly what community was like and like feel like you weren't an outsider almost it was just like a really lovely time yeah i i must admit that so much of when i look back on my comedy career was that i just actually wanted an excuse to hang out with comedians i thought yeah. that it'd be good fun to hang out with comedians and the best way to do that was to become a comedian <laughs> 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 then they don't mind that you're around i either had to become a drug dealer or another comedian <laughs> to be able to accept it into the group so do you feel at that stage your comedy like advancing quickly? Did you ever have a point where you felt like, you know, you made advances but then plateaued? Like what's it like creatively at that time for you? Yeah, I felt like the um, that point was like the most ambitious but also the, the quickest rise. I feel like because it – when you start, if you're – um, funny you immediately get just like put on every gig and all of a sudden you're sort of ahead of the other people who are maybe need to find their voice or something like that and then I feel like it's almost like a few years in that's where the plateau first started because everything was so fast at the beginning um, and so I feel like yeah at the start I don't even know I don't I don't know if it was I don't know what was happening in my brain. Everything was just happening so fast and I was just like so excited about it all. Uh I always ask people on this show if they have a life philosophy. And I think this is a good time to ask you if you you have a life philosophy. Is there some sort of guiding principle by which you would describe your life either something you ascribe to or something that you would reflect upon and say this is kind of my philosophy? Um I guess there's my mum's always said shit happens then you die and I think that's probably something that I think about a lot because I definitely don't think like I need to do anything for anybody else I'm just here for myself um 
and I just want to sort of like have a nice time and have fun. So I think, yeah, shit happens, then you die is probably my philosophy. Okay, so I'm very <laughs> interested in... I, I think it's a quite a good and profound philosophy. I know that it sounds you know something somewhat glib, perhaps like on first listen, but I actually think there's a lot to it because that's absolutely what happens in life. Shit yeah. happens, and then you die, and you don't know when you're going to die. And sometimes it can be way too soon. And all those plans that you had, well, it turns out some shit happened, and then you died, and you <laughs> yeah. didn't get to do any of those other things. <laughs> and every single person who's ever lived has fucking died, and some shit happened, and then they died. I mean, it's almost the perfect philosophy for life. Yeah. <laughs> but you talk about the idea of fun. I'm interested in that in relationship to stand-up comedy. I mean, that's obviously the prism through which I see a lot of my life. And I know from the inside how rewarding, but also how challenging pursuing a life of like stand-up comedy can be. So where do you find fun in stand-up comedy? What parts of it are fun to you? And how has that changed if it has over your time doing it? I think um, I what I find fun is like being able to get up on stage and say something and have an audience listen to you, but you can say whatever you want to them. They're sort of like, and they're captive and so sometimes I'll be saying a joke and they'll be laughing but I'll be laughing but I'm not laughing at what they're laughing at I'm laughing because they're laughing and I find that quite fun to be like I can't believe I'm saying this and they're laughing what you've said there is so perfect because Often over the years, people are like, oh, you laugh too much at your own jokes. And I'm like, occasionally, maybe I would laugh at one of my own jokes. But mostly on stage, if you see me laughing, it's exactly what you've just described. I'm not laughing at the joke I just said that I've heard a hundred times. I'm laughing at the audience's reaction to that joke or that yeah. me, me knowing what I've made them do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'll even laugh before the joke. Because I can't believe I'm about to say that to them. (laughs) Um, Have you ever had a situation where you felt like you lost that joy? Has there been a time over your comedy career where the joy of being a comedian or doing comedy has gone away? Yeah, I think um, sort of – I think I'm only just getting it back. I feel like there was like the last maybe like two years or so I think just um, feeling that I think there was like a point where I felt like I was trying to be what I thought people liked about me instead of being what I actually want to do or or what I enjoy doing. Um, okay, so if it's not too personal, I would yeah. love to know what you mean by that. So what is it that you thought that people thought you should be doing and what is it that you really want to be doing? I think I thought um, – I should be maybe like being like as as silly as possible and as um sort of like as weird as possible um within like what makes sense for like my character on stage but I think that sort of like put me in a box and that wasn't who I was anymore I think it was like oh I'm I actually really like stories and I like the like little things that people say that make them insane 
Um, not so much like, you know, somebody can be like, I've lived the most insane life. I climbed all these mountains and I got kidnapped by all these people. But if they tell it in a really boring way, it's still a boring story. But if somebody went and bought a bag of soil from Bunnings but it has a really great turn of phrase, then that could be way more exciting. I had a heckle a few years ago. It's rare that I get like a heckle in a big show these days. But I was yeah. a bit like about I was about ten minutes into the show and it had been going fine. And then somebody just yelled out, Tell a funny story. And <laughs> I was like <laughs> I was like, it's such a weird heckle because it's not really you know, anyway, but the point being that I don't really tell funny stories. Like I hopefully tell stories about things that sometimes aren't even funny at all, but I tell the story in a funny way. The idea that I'm just going around looking for funny stories. You see that a lot in open mic stand-up comedy. Somebody who yeah. has a couple of genuinely funny stories. Something really funny happened to them in their life. They've told it a bunch of times at a party and they've decided to do stand-up comedy and they kill with that story. And then when they have to do something that isn't that story, they're like, oh, no, no, that was it. I have that story, that funny yeah. thing that happened to me. <laughs> um, all right. So you tell me then, um, I, I'm interested in people's ambitions. And look, I know this is a difficult question because it's always ask, hard to ask people about the – you know, the secret thoughts they have about what it is they would like to be doing. But, but you know, when you have this time to reflect and rediscover the joy and, you know, what it is that you really want to do, what, what, what does that mean to you? Where do you see that going? What would you like to develop and be able to do? Well, I think I've been thinking about it a lot recently because I, I went back home to Townsville a few weeks ago for a, for a while to spend time with my grandparents and stuff. And, um, I feel like there's a part of um, Australian culture, like old people in the country, like I feel like that's sort of dying out their way of life because that's not really how we live anymore. And so I'd really love to capture that in sort of every form possible, <laughs> you know, documentaries, film, TV, stand-up, everything, because that's something that I love so much is just my grandparents and the way they talk and the way they live and I think that that's something that nobody really experiences anymore the way they've lived their life so I've heard you talk about your granddad in particular a bunch like yeah. you know told how do they feel about um the fact that you will tell you know their stories and share the stories of things that they've said and things that they've done do they enjoy that they they're strange because I don't think my granddad seems to think I get everything funny from him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't think my, I think they like the idea of it all, but they don't really get it. Right. Um, and I think they love it when I talk about them. Um, but I don't think they understand what's funny about them because to them, they're just like normal people living their lives. Um, so that's interesting to me. I love the TV show Rosehaven, um, you know, Celia and Luke's show about, yeah. um, you know, kind of a small Tasmanian country town. And the, the reason I love that show so much and I always say to them is someone who spent the first 17 years of my life living in a small, you know, country area that the characters are also true, but they paint them with affection and any sort of humour that's at their expense is humour they would also enjoy you know they don't yeah. go there and go look at all these hillbillies or these backwards people they 
that you know there is a joy in the eccentricities of country living that yeah. is probably ignored a lot by the cities. What is it that you find particularly fascinating about that generation of people? Well, I I get very annoyed by city people all the time thinking that they're better than country people because they're just different skill sets. Um, like I love, I think the thing that I love is just how able to survive they are. Yeah. Like my granddad can go to the dump and find a bunch of stuff and come back and build any sort of thing he needs mm. and he can live off the land and he knows how to do that and he knows how to find where the underground water is and all that stuff and I think that's something that I really I think it's quite magical. I think that's what it is because to me it seems like he's doing magic. Like he's put two bits of metal in his hands and then he's just bent them over and there's <laughs> they just find the water somehow. Like that's magic. You can't say that that's not magic. <laughs> I remember the first time we had a professional water diviner come to our property because yeah. I grew up in what – what I thought was a very – because my dad doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, kissed the, married the first woman he ever kissed, lived on the same road all of his life, you know, like yeah. a very simple man with a simple worldview, not religious, no magical thinking at all, not somebody that I would consider having like this huge, wonderful imagination. And so the first time somebody came to our farm with a couple of bits of wire and wandered around <laughs> and said, there's the water, I was like, who is this Hogwarts-style magician that you have invited onto our property? <laughs> It is genuinely weird to watch somebody do it. <laughs> They're like following the wire too, like it's leading the way. Um, what is your capacity for those things? Because I have recently been challenged myself. So like a year and a half ago, um, I moved to the country. Like my partner's from the country and uh, we moved back to the country. But I haven't been in yeah. the country for... 30 years, you know, like it's been a long time since I've needed to, you know, and I constantly just reminded of the fact that I wish I'd paid more attention when my dad was trying to teach me all these things that would be super handy for me to know. Like, yeah, like I had a problem with our fence the other day, and like there's horses in the paddock, and I didn't want the horses to escape. And I'm like, the amount of times my dad tried to show me how to repair a fence, and I was just like, I'm never going to need this, I'm going to be a comedian, I don't need to know how to <laughs> repair a fence. But how practical are you in regard to those things? What did you pick up and how much of it have you retained? Well, I think I struggle with living in the city and just like the way that life has to be in the city or to do, like I can't do admin. Somebody else has to do all my admin because I cannot do it because my brain doesn't work that way. I think it just works in a country way where you just like see problems and then think of ways how to fix them, but they have to be real world problems. Like I have to be able to see the thing I need to fix. It can't be invisible in the air. It has to be like that needs new legs on it. I need to make some sort of device to keep the cockatoos away from the passion fruit. Like it needs to be all that. And if that's – I can do anything practical. <laughs> so do you desire to be back in the country? I mean obviously – the point you are in your career and what your career is, it requires like being in the city, you know, as a, yeah. it's very hard to get the amount of like stage hours that you need, you know, living in a country area, like as opposed to the city. So do you imagine that at some stage in your life, you'll 
end up back in the country? I'd love to live somewhere that's like easily accessible to the city through a train line or something and be in the country. Um, but, I, yeah, I don't know how realistic it is in the short term. Definitely in the long term I'd love to live somewhere nearby that I can have acreage. I think that would be great. Life's uh, shit happens and then you die. I ask people all the time, normally further towards the end of the episode, what they think happens when we die. But I think it's a good time to ask it because it's so connected to your philosophy. So we've talked the, talked about shit happening. Then there's the you die <laughs> bit. Do you have any belief about what happens when we die? I have no idea because I feel like in my rational mind, it's like, well, we're dead and we're dead and then we rot and we're nothing. But then when I was a kid, I used to, I saw a ghost. And so um, I'm like, oh, but then there's that as well. (laughs) So what is that about? Okay. So tell me that's. Tell me that story. So you actually think that you saw a ghost? Yeah, I, I feel I'm going to sound crazy because everybody always, it sounds insane. But when I was little, I um, woke up in the middle of the night and my mum was jumping up and down on my bed. So I got up and I ran to mum and dad's room because I wanted dad to come get mum to stop jumping on my bed. And then when I got to mum and dad's room, um, my mum and dad were both asleep in their bed. And from that point on, I started to call everything in my life Edward. I wanted to call all my Barbie dolls Edward, all my motorbikes Edward. I wanted to call everything Edward. And um, then one night my nana, she sat me down to have a conversation and she was like, why do you call everything Edward? Um, And I told her about how there was this uh, man who used to come visit me in the middle of the night who played the harmonica and told me jokes and told me stories um, and his name was Edward and that he he looked a lot like my mum. And then my nana, she started crying and she said that her dad was the only taxi driver in Tully and um, he worked really long hours and so he would get home in the middle of the night and he'd wake her up and tell her the stories that the passengers told him that day and all the jokes they told him that day and he'd play the harmonica. Um, And his name was Edward and he looks a lot like my mum. Um, but I'd never like heard Nana talk about him because she doesn't really like talking about her family that much. Um, and so nobody knew how I'd gotten any of that information because Nana doesn't tell anybody any of that stuff. Um, so that's the only thing that makes me weirdly hesitant because I'm like so logical and like, I don't believe in ghosts, but then I have that insane story. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that ghosts, uh, so my partner, she believes in all sorts of things and she constantly, you know, she, her standard response is, but don't ask Will, he believes in nothing. Yeah. And she's right. <laughs> I mean, to she is really, you know, kind of reducing my entire worldview to he believes in nothing. <laughs> but there is some truth behind what she's saying that I – if I were asked, I don't think that there is any sort of, you know, I don't think there are ghosts and I don't think there are aliens yeah. and I don't think that, you know, any of these sort of things. But what I do believe is that it's clearly a whole bunch of people who have had these experiences that I can't explain. Yeah. 
Now, in my head, I'm like, well, there just must be some explanation, right? Like, you know, there's got to be some rational explanation to what you're just telling me. But I don't know what it is. And if sometimes somebody came along and went, no, no, Danielle was right the whole time. There was definitely ghosts. (laughs) 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 Grandma's dad lived in the house, came home, told me stories, played the harmonica. I'd be like, okay, fuck it. I was wrong, I guess. I was wrong about the pandemic. Thought it wasn't coming to Australia. Also wrong about ghosts. Wait, you thought the pandemic wasn't coming to Australia? I, I honestly, I, I, I was going off to Adelaide to do the Adelaide Fringe Festival, and uh, my partner, she said to me, she said, "Do you think that you know this COVID thing that's happening overseas this is going to be an issue in Australia?" And I said, "No, we will be fine. We are a first world country. We are an island. Normally, when things like this happen, they." predominantly affect third world countries, you know, places where they don't have good medical systems and support and those sort of things, we will be fine. Yeah. And then by the end of the Adelaide Fringe, they cancelled the <laughs> Melbourne Comedy Festival and I'm like, I was wrong. <laughs> that was true. I couldn't believe I when everybody was talking about is Melbourne going to be cancelled, I could not. Like, I, had, I was like, what are you talking about? They can't cancel the whole festival. That just can't happen. In light of what happened has happened this year, I mean, you and I are speaking today in the middle of uh, an extended Sydney lockdown. It's quite amazing that they managed to get away with the entire Melbourne Comedy Festival, like a month of stand-up comedy this year, to be honest. Yeah. Like, in retrospect, uh, incredibly lucky that that happened. Was there a time in lockdown, I mean, that you – how much were you gigging? Like, you know, were there periods of time where you were able to get out and still do shows? What was the longest that you went without doing any stage time? Well, in the – because I moved to Sydney in November. Um, so previously to that, I did the full, like, seven-month lockdown in Melbourne. Um, and I think we had, like, ten days in between the two lockdowns where things had opened up enough for us to do some gigs – so for 10 days we were open and I did like 10 gigs in those 10 days and I loved it so much but I think I think like 3 months is probably the 3 or 4 months is probably the longest because I think it was at the start and then at the end um it was such a long time Yeah so did it feel like a long time because you're at a point in your life where you know it I mean particularly comedically where Three months is a really long time. Yeah. Like, did it feel like a really long time? It felt like a really long time, but I think it was also good for me because it was sort of like uh, a good reset to be able to have time to think about, like, what I want to do and uh, what I want to make and what I want to talk about. So I think it's been really good, actually, in the scheme of things. As much as I've missed getting on stage and doing all of that, I think it's been really good for me to – um, just do, I don't know, spend more time in my own head and also remember what I like to do outside of comedy as well. So let's explore that then. What do you like to do outside of comedy? Um, I like to uh, garden and I like to paint and I like to make things with my hands. So I've been, I got a sander the other day and I've been doing up some furniture. I've been sanding and staining wood and stuff. And um, I've been teaching myself how to do like nails as well, you know, like fingernails, like 
how you would do those and I just like yeah making things so I've got I bought went and bought some resin from Bunnings the other day to try and make an art piece that I want to try and work out how to do with some lights and stuff um so I think it's just been fun to be able to be back in my head and be like oh I actually like doing all of this other stuff and uh connecting the dots between all different sort of art forms yeah I like that I dig that so when you are going to teach yourself how to do something how what's that process for you because a lot of people find that extremely intimidating and when I say a lot of people normally what I really mean when I say that Danielle is I find that very intimidating (laughs) and I'm hoping that a lot of other people also find that intimidating and it's not just me I've had to re-engage with a lot of those same skills like you know I live on a property there is maintenance that needs to be done you can't get someone else to do it you learn need to learn how to do some basic plumbing and some basic wiring and cleaning out things and you know how to chop you know trees down with like something bigger than just a you know handy saw you'd have in the city those sort of things I find the process of learning how to do those things extremely tough for me there's a barrier there of just starting the process how do you start the process when you want to learn how to do something uh well we we do have access to the internet so that does help um i can just google anything i want and then i'll just pick and choose what i want to do you know if they got extra steps there that i think uh it doesn't make logical (laughs) sense in my mind for me to do those extra steps then i won't do the extra steps i'll just do it how i think i want to do it but mostly yeah I just think I just Google some stuff. But I do also think I've got an added advantage of like I'm good at doing things with my hands. So that is something that I know is like a skill of mine, whereas like my partner can't do anything with his – he is not good in that realm of like practical things, but he is good at everything to do with uh, online stuff or more technical things that – don't exist basically he can do all the stuff that in my mind I'm like that doesn't exist that's not real I don't understand how you're making spreadsheets on the computer but I can fix a light bulb or you know make some good potting mix yeah okay so I get that and I totally understand that but also you are a creative you are taking all these magical things that are in your head and then you are making them into something in the same way. Like none of those things exist either other than thoughts or, you know, opinions or attitudes to things. And yet you are able to pluck them magically out of the air and turn them into a story or a joke. That's true. I guess I see it like, you know how, is it Michelangelo? I don't know who it was. The guy who liked to sculpt marble. And you know Mm. how he was like. Michelangelo. Yeah. He'd have the big marble and he'd be like, Mm. oh, I didn't sculpt that. He was already in there. I just took away Mm. the excess marble. Yeah. And I almost feel like that's like what everything I do is, is just like putting all the things together that already exist in the world. Right. Just getting rid of the excess marble. Yeah. I, I, I love. I, I think that's an interesting way of uh, you know looking at what you're doing. Do you do that when you're putting together a show? Because I've I've used that analogy before. Like you know, I say sometimes people are filling up a bucket. You know, you've got a sixty minute bucket, and yeah. you're just like uh, constantly going, okay, here's five minutes that I can put in my bucket, and here's another three minutes I can put in my bucket, and then eventually you, your bucket's full, and you're like, here's my show. It's in the bucket, and yeah. then there's the people who. Yeah, Michelangelo style or like, here's my lump of marble. 
And yeah. somewhere in here, once I get rid of all the bits that are not meant to be there, the show is going to be inside there. So when you're putting together a show, constructing an hour of comedy, which of those approaches are you taking? I guess I'm probably more the bucket because I do gen- I do think I just take things from my life and then put them in the bucket and then build stuff around them. Um, you know, there'll be something that's really funny from my life that I think is really funny and then I'll make a bit out of it. But really, I could say it in one sentence. Mm. But, you know, <laughs> my granddad's dug his own grave is one sentence, but it's got a five-minute <laughs> bit associated with it. <laughs> so hang on, but is this a true story? Has your granddad actually dug his own grave? Yeah, he just he wants to be buried on his property uh-huh. And he just. Is that legal, by the way? Are you allowed to be buried on your own property or do you have to be buried in a graveyard? I don't know what no, the No, you're not supposed to you're... be buried on your yeah. property, but, um, you know. It seemed like something that was illegal to me. I yeah. feel like I would have heard of it more if it was a thing that people were allowed to do. Yeah, I think you can on like larger properties if you have right. like. Count- you have to get like council approval and do all mm. that, but I don't think his property is <laughs> big enough. I think it's like 26 acres or something. Um, and yeah, he's dug it. And he wants to be buried there, but we don't think it's going to be possible. But, I mean, he has also said, just chuck me in a river. <laughs> so, like. <laughs> but that's that's irresponsible. All you of these just, are illegal. <laughs> I mean, at least burying him somewhere on his own property is like, but you can't just chuck like an old man's body in a river. You don't no. know what's down river. <laughs> Yeah, he'll be. I assume somebody else will have to deal with the body if he goes down river. I had this uh, wonderful uh, f- friend of mine. She was an elderly lady called uh, Mary, and she was uh, came into my life when uh, Adam and I were doing Triple J Breakfast way back in the day. And she was seventy and would listen to our show, and so we'd regularly have her on to review albums or just you know talk to us about all these things. And when she died. Um, yeah, one of her requests was, this is how cool a lady was, that we scatter her ashes uh, in Sydney Harbour under the Sydney Harbour Bridge because she lost her virginity to a sailor on a boat under the Sydney Harbour Bridge. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, so we all went down there and we chucked her ashes into Sydney Harbour. <laughs> she does seem cool. <laughs> I mean, but you can't just throw your granddad's body in a river. That's too much. No, that so, one is you got to make him ashes first, definitely. I'm fascinated in the process and the way that you broke that, that down there, which is like, yes, it's just a lie. You know, my granddad, you know, dug his own grave. So how do you then decide, you know, I, I want this to be a longer thing. What's the construction process there? Like are you just picking apart every bit of it? Are you just starting to tell the story? Are you trying to go, what is – the interesting part of this to me? Like how does it develop from being one line to being five minutes? I think uh, I thought it was funny that he dug his own grave um, and also that he dug it right near where he's buried all his dead dogs, um, you know, from the past. So I thought that was like really funny to just be surrounded by dead dogs And then I thought it was funny, the idea of him having this grave built for years before he's being, he's died and him having to maintain it and the way we would have to maintain his grave. And I made it into, in the story, we use it as a swimming pool in the summer. (laughs) Um, And then just 
also, yeah, just talking about how, yeah, he's got to maintain it in the summertime and get all the leaf litter out and he just goes down and hangs out in his own grave in a chair. <laughs> and then um, there's a ending line and then afterwards I did it on a show and a lady messaged me after the show and she told me that it's cheaper to have your own grave dug before you died and that her granddad had dug it. He'd also dug his own grave and it was $2,000 cheaper and he got to um, <laughs> deduct it from taxes. And so the end bit like wrote itself <laughs> because I'd started doing the start bit. And it, I do like that as well. The, 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 there is a difference between when I do stuff in the city, city people listen to it and they sort of think like, oh, wow, how crazy is that? That's absurd. And then you go to the country and they're laughing because they relate to it because it's, it's their life, <laughs> which I think right. is what I like. I think there is something that, about that. Like, So down in the paddock where our horses – they're not our horses. We have two horses. They're registered. They're somebody, someone else actually owns the horses, but they live in our paddock. And uh, there is a giant uh, mound down in the paddock, like, and which is – where someone who previously lived in the paddock, the donkey that lived there that died has been buried. So it's quite a big grave, you can imagine. They had yeah. to, you know, bury a, bury a donkey and it's kind of like a big mound on top. And I remember when I first kind of discovered what that was because I was just naive. I don't know. <laughs> I'd been in the city too long and, like, just one day asked that, so what's that big lump down there with all the rocks on it? And that's like, oh, yeah, that's where the donkey's buried. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's like a – dead donkey buried in my paddock. It's like <laughs> not really a city issue. Yeah, no, I think about that because when mum and dad got separated, they sold the, our, our house and um, our dog Andre was buried on the property and now that person just doesn't know where my dead dog is and I know where my dead dog is. Like I could go there and point and be like, my dead dog's right there underneath your soil. <laughs> That's my dog. And they just wouldn't even know. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you've had this period of time to reflect a little bit on what it is you, you love about, you know, creating. Um, so where, where do you think that goes next? Do you have hopes and expectations that you're going to get to be able to do festivals and like do shows? Is that even something that you aspire to at the moment? Yeah, I really want to do a show next year because I – I went up to Townsville for a few weeks um, before the, just before this pandemic, and I started um, filming all my family and all their stories, um, and sitting down with them. And I want to continue to do that like every year or two for forever. Um, but I just want to talk about them a lot and all the, you know, them getting older, and just the way that our relationships changing. And, you know, all, all their stories, because I do think all their stories are so interesting and the way that they lived, I think, is so different to the way that a lot of people lived. Like they lived in caravans all over Australia at different mines and there were points where they didn't have a house. They lived underneath a corrugated iron roof on four poles and slept in a caravan to mine sapphires and like all of that stuff that I think is very um, old school Australian that just doesn't exist anymore I love that but I just want to talk about yeah them and their lives I guess really and my relationship to that 
So what is your relationship to that? Because that's, I mean, the most interesting thing, isn't it? Like, I mean, at least for you, you know, you're the star of your own movie, you're the star of your story. And so I'm interested in what it is that you're looking for by asking those questions. What is it that you, I mean, I always say with this podcast that hopefully you'll learn a little bit about the guests that I have on, but chances are, if you're listening carefully, you'll learn a lot more about me because it's about what, what am I curious about? You know, what questions do I want answered? What am I obviously searching for in my life that is reflected through the questions that I ask other people? So I put that now on you when you are asking them questions. What is it that you're curious about? What is it that you're trying to unlock about the way that they lived and its connection to you? I guess I'm trying to figure out how who they are has made me who I am. Um, And, you know, I see that a lot when I go up there now because I'm an adult now and I'm more self-aware. I can like see that, you know, my granddad is the hero in every story he tells about himself (laughs) and that my mum sometimes is the funniest person in the world but also a lot of the time doesn't, like is completely gullible and doesn't see what's so funny about what's happening. You know, she told me a story about one time when there was like a shootout at um, one of their friend's properties they were at and um, this guy came and was trying to shoot um, her uncle and um, he the gun went down towards the ground and blew off his ankle. And she said about the, the wife of the man who'd just been shot, anyway, she was hysterical as if... <laughs> as if she wasn't just watching her husband be shot. And so it's just interesting for me to see that as well and be like, oh, I am self-aware and then I also have those moments where I say stuff that is just the least self-aware you could possibly be. And, yeah, Granddad's always a hero in his own stories. My nan is the most dramatic person I've ever met in my entire life. Um, so it's I like to see where I'm getting all that from. And also being able to sort of maybe change their minds about a few things as well, see what I can push on them. I mean, that only happens to mum. I can't do that to Nana and Granddad. They're too too old for me to change anything about them. But also just to let them talk as well. I um, liked I went up and just hung out with my Granddad for a few days because my Nana went down to Brisbane and he... Uh, so you don't believe in aliens. Um, my granddad does a lot. Um, and <laughs> I love hearing all his stories. And I also think there's, you know, based off all his stories, there's got to be something, you know. <laughs> uh, there's got to be something. And so my uh, nana has banned any conversation of uh, my granddad's theories from the house. And so being able to spend a few days with him and just letting him talk that was really nice because he said to me one night when we were having a campfire and we'd had one the night before, he said, um, oh, I got, I actually, I slept really good last night. I had the best sleep I've had in years because my brain was empty. Um, And so I felt like that was really nice to be able to sort of like give him some, I don't know, time to be, to actually talk about the things he wants to talk about, which I don't think he really gets that often. That is 
a very beautiful thing to say. And it is a very beautiful thing that you give another person. And I think that we we could all learn. I, honestly, when you were telling that story, I it just made so much sense to me that you've unlocked something there, which is that sometimes we just need to give someone the opportunity to empty out their brain so that they're not and that doesn't just in relation to your granddad being able to tell his stories about the aliens like it can be in relation to just listening to somebody who's got an issue that you're like I don't I don't want to have to listen to this but it's not about you having to listen to it it's about them having someone hear them and yeah you know acknowledge them and you know and all those conversations don't have to happen in their brain all the time I think actually in a way it's it's part of why we end up doing stand-up comedy is that these things are all happening in our heads and we're like the best way for us to just not constantly have this conversation in our heads is to say all these ideas in front of other people and then there's a place for them. Yeah, definitely. Uh, tell me, Danielle Walker, who are you at your best? When you feel at your best, when you look at yourself and you think, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good today, what does that look like? Um, well, I've recently started taking anxiety medication, so, um, I have noticed my brain change a bit the last few weeks. And I think that that is when I'm having nice thoughts about everybody, um, because that makes me just happier as well. Just like, if you only have nice thoughts about people, I do think that that makes me feel happier. It makes me feel more creative because there's no space in there for bad things. It's just just nice and happy thoughts. So I think, yeah, just when you're nice in your head to everybody. Um, if it's not too personal, and I always, you know, preface it with that, but what about the opposite then? When you're at your worst, what's going on in your life? I think it's like if if I'm super anxious, it's very easy for me to – I think this is one thing about my mum that I noticed is she jumps to conclusions very fast. It's like everything that, you know, if she can't find her glasses, somebody's stolen them. Mm. Um, and so I think that if I'm anxious, then that's what I'll be like in my own head. It's like something's gone wrong. Who's done that to me? Mm. Um, and so I think that that's who I am at my worst is thinking everybody in the world is a villain against me. <laughs> Have you ever got a really terrible piece of advice? Something that someone told you that you later reflected on and just went, I think they were full of shit. Oh, definitely. But I don't, I think I felt that in the moment and let it go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's good. That's interesting you to explore. So you're okay at like, you know, when somebody says, because whenever I give someone advice, I say this this is like stuff that perhaps worked for me or was my experience, but it does not mean that it would necessarily work for you anyway. But are you good at being able to I, – I, I don't think I am. I think I am quite – it probably is what makes me okay at doing this, like having conversations with people. But when people are talking to me, like during this conversation, I'm like, yeah, you know what, Will – there probably are aliens and ghosts. <laughs> Why are you being so uptight about the fact that there's not aliens and ghosts? Because I get in the moment and I want to be there in it. So I don't think I am very good at recognising when somebody's talk full of shit at the time. But you think you've got a good sense for that? Well, I think I can just hear it and think, oh, that's not going to work for me. Maybe. Right. And then I'll just – I just won't hold on to whatever that is, you know, like – I don't I don't have any examples because I only 
I don't think I take on actually that's uh, maybe that's a thing. I don't really take on advice that often. Mm. I have to do everything for myself and learn it all myself because I don't learn fast. I think I genuinely have to I think I learn quite slow in regards to like life lessons and things and I have to do it myself because if not I'm not I'm not going to learn. I can't read about somebody else's thing. I've got to make my own mistakes. <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think that's a mistake that a lot of young comedians make these days. When I started, it was running away to join the circus. And, you know, you might see the gala every year or like, you know, be able to get like a, you know, Bill Cosby CD. You yeah. know, that's <laughs> aged very well. Um, but there wasn't the access to podcasts and the internet and YouTube and all these sort of things. And I think there is a bit of an attitude amongst some of the younger generation of comedians that you can skip past a whole bunch of steps. Like I will often get contacted by somebody who's like, I'm going to do my first gig. Have you got advice? And I'm like, yeah, here's some advice, but do 50 gigs and then you'll understand the advice I've just given you. Like until you actually see those things and I can tell you about all the things that are going to happen, but until the things actually happen, you're not going to learn the lesson anyway. Yeah. And I think some advice works for somebody one year in Mm. that it doesn't work for people who are 10 years in. Yeah, it's not that it's that is also what I would say is like often people will hit me up. It's just happened a lot recently, so it's top of mind for me. But they'll be like, What's the best way for me to get into the open mic scene? And I'm like, Dude, I'm I'm happy to take the time to give you advice, but you're asking somebody who hasn't had to do an open mic set for fucking 20 years. How the fuck would I know? I've got no idea. (laughs) Ask someone who's a little closer to doing that in their life, they will have a lot more hot tips. Than granddad comedy is like, I don't know. Is the friend in hand still a room? I don't know. I don't know what's going on, guys. Um, if you did not have to do the 10,000 hours to perfect it, you just were able to wake up one day and have a skill. It can be any skill in the world. You can interpret that however you want, but you just now have this skill. What would you like that skill to be? I'd, pl- I'd want to know how to play the piano. Mm. Why? I just always um, liked the idea of being able to play the piano um, and I just – I used to play keyboard a little bit and I just really enjoyed being able to sit there and bang around with the keys but I have no idea what I'm doing um, and I just think I'd really like to be able to sit down and play the piano for myself and have fun doing that. But that takes so many hours to learn how to do good. That's well. That's what the question is, though, Danielle. Yeah. Like you don't have to do the hours. You're just able to have the skills. So that's a good one. It's it's and it's not the first time people have said it. And I think it would be on my list. I think about it every time. Like I ask someone this question, I always think about it myself. And like being able to play the piano, I think is an incredible skill. And I think it'd be, yeah. So what's yours? Do you have the same one all the time, or does it change? Or no, it changes all the time. Like the capacity, like one that comes up a lot is people the capacity to speak a foreign language fluently or more than one foreign language f- fluently. I think that would be right up there at the top of mine as well. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, on my desk, uh, in fact, just behind me, I think it is. Here we go. Look at this. I have a little bit of uh, kind of metal, grey metal, and uh, it's as close to an inspirational slogan or whatever that, you know, I have in my life. It says on it, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And so I'm going to ask you that question. If success was guaranteed, 
you don't have to worry about whether people are going to like it or enjoy it or come and see it or whatever it is that you're going to answer this. It's guaranteed to be successful. What is it? What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? Poor comedy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's, you're already attempting that. Like, do you have, do you, do you attack it with that mindset? Do you just go, okay, I'm just going to write stuff as if it's going to work? Do you take into consideration, like, you know, is that maybe that transition you were talking about before where, it's more about I'm going to stop thinking about what the audience expects of me and what they think I should be doing and I'm just going to attack it as if they're going to like what I create. Yeah, I think just if knowing that whatever I do, it will succeed, I think it, it would give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do but also there'd be a horrible feeling like is this even good or is this just a deal <laughs> with the devil I've made? I mean, I guess, yeah, there is a difference in perspective there, isn't it? Like does the challenge I, – I talk about um, stand-up a lot is I think that secretly if they really scratch it a lot, stand-ups need to admit that part of the appeal of stand-up comedy is trying to master something that we all have plenty of evidence to know is completely unmasterable. <laughs> yeah. There are moments of it. We've all had them. You know, that's what keeps you doing it where you feel like, oh, Right now, I'm in this groove with this audience and these jokes and what I'm doing that I am mastering it, but that can go away the next night or the next joke even. Yeah. You know, it, um, it, it, that can be part of the appeal. But So maybe if it was guaranteed to be successful, maybe the challenge of it would go away and it wouldn't be as interesting. Yeah, maybe it could just feel like <clears throat> they're all laughing patronisingly mm. at yeah. you. <laughs> Because I've seen, you know, when you see, you know, there's always in the in comedy, there's always people who maybe aren't that good at comedy around. And so I used to see them in the open mic scene sometimes. You'd still see somebody who you've never seen do well at a gig and then all of a sudden one gig, they're destroying the room, everything's working, it's completely right. And my favourite one I've ever seen of that, this guy was doing everything completely right he was being the perfect character he could be and it was so funny because you could see in his eyes he didn't know what was happening or why he was getting these laughs he had no idea what was happening but he was saying the words and it was working and it was the best thing I've ever seen he seemed so confused All right. This has been great. Thank you so much for doing this. What can we um, plug uh, before I ask the final question? Um, I don't really use social media. I don't even know what my handle is. I think it's at Dan Walker Comedy maybe or at Danielle Walker Comedy. I guess if you just type in my name, stuff will um, probably come up Um, because, yeah, I I don't really use social media that much instagram if there's anything is what i use uh so final question danielle walker thank you for doing the show today uh is this i have a time machine i can take you to any point in the future any point in the past you can change something you can observe something you can ignore your own life and just go and visit some period of time or some person in history that you would like to visit i don't mind uh so firstly would you go forward in time or back in time and then tell me where you would go uh, I go back in time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'd like to go maybe back to the 70s and mm-hmm. I'd like to meet like my nana and granddad as like young people when they had my mum and my uncle um, to be able to see what they were like then and compare them to now. Great answer. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this, mate. No worries.